Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. One thing I think I knew that I had over some of my competitors was just the willingness to stick it out. Making it in Hollywood is tough. That is nothing new. For Damien Chazelle, though, success came harder than he expected. Damien is the youngest person to win the Academy Award for Best Director. He was just 32 years old when he made La La Land. Three years earlier, at just 29, he wrote and directed Whiplash, his semi-autobiographical film, which earned Damien an Oscar nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. His start in show business came making documentary films at Harvard. After graduating, Damien switched to feature films. He has directed big stars, talented stars. J.K. Simmons, Miles Teller, Emma Stone, Ryan Gosling, Claire Foy, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie. There's no denying Damien Chazelle is one of the most talented directors working today. But like anyone else doing creative work... He's hit a few bumps along the way. I talked about all of that with Damien. He was battling a bit of a cold when we met, but true to character, he stuck it out. And we had a really engaging conversation about the ups and downs, as well as the pure joy of making movies. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. This is Talking Pictures, a podcast about movies, about memories, and all the stuff that happens in between. Turner Classic Movies makes this podcast with the streaming service Max, where you can see some of the movies mentioned in this episode. Critics have compared Damien Chazelle to legendary filmmakers like John Cassavetes and Jean-Luc Godard, directors he really admires. But I wanted to know which filmmaker made him want to be a director. Like his films, he gave an unorthodox and interesting answer. It's a good question because my, my, you know, probably the first person behind the screen, so to speak, who I became aware of was Walt Disney. So I became very obsessive about him and his beginnings. And uh, I was drawing a lot at the time, so I would be kind of collecting books that would sort of teach you how to, sort of manuals for how to draw in the Disney way, you know. Um, and so it'd be a lot of um, pictures of like a young Walt Disney at his easel, you know, figuring out um you know, early sketches of Mickey Mouse and things like that. My sensibilities or my sort of sense of kind of, let's say, how to how I like to move the camera or how I like to edit to music or how I sort of like images to sort of move across the screen, it was probably more shaped and formed by animation than I given it credit. 
I love the, the taking the VHS boxes. I mean, you had a little fantasy, oh, you, you had your own little fantasy world. You remember that? Yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. I would turn them inside out and then, yeah, write my own. But you'd make yeah, up a title, Dana right? Giselle production or whatever, yeah. And I, would it be that movie or I'd, would you come up with a title? Oh, I'd write blurbs for the reviews too. It was great. I was already, <laughs> had my, <laughs> already had all the right priorities. Um, what kind of blurbs would you write? Like what would it Well, say? I would just mimic what I saw on the real boxes, you know, right. so it'd be like two thumbs up or something. Yeah. Or, it'd be, or it'd be, you know, uh, uh, another Disney classic. <laughs> you know? So I'd kind of be like that. So I'd just be like, oh, this is what they write, um, you know, and try to figure out how hey, to copy you, the barcode and things like that. You know, I just oh, you you'd copy the barcode, yeah, like, yeah, oh my yeah, ISBN and then whatever number, you know, and all that stuff. You'd make an up, you'd make up an ISBN number. Yeah, I didn't know what these things were. Of course, I, just, I still it, don't it, really it was, know what they are. It was pure, yeah, mim- right. pure mimicry. You know, it wasn't um, anything more advanced than that. But I, I was a good mimic. Were you the director or were you the Walt Disney? Was it Damien Chazelle Presents or was it a directed by Damien, a Damien Chazelle film? I think I was probably doing those little make-believe things before I had a concrete sense of what a director was. And again, you know, with the, a lot of the Disney movies I was looking at, they were directed by uh, other people. You know, so yeah. it, it was not Disney being listed as the director. So, so I probably was doing Damien Chazelle Presents in, my, in, a, in, you know, my, in a very grandiloquent, self-aggrandizing way. And then... Um, you know, I made up a lot of names also for kind of home movies and stuff, you know, like I decided uh, uh, I would make these ho- a lot of home movies produced by this guy named Gary Turner, just sounded like a good name. So uh, uh, Gary Turner produced all my my early work. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a, a production company called Red Sun Pictures that I stole from the I stole the logo from the poster of Jurassic Park where it had that kind of the palm trees with the sort of red right. sun kind of rising up. I thought that was cool. So Red Sun Picture is a Gary Turner production. And then, yeah. Gary I, Turner production. Yeah, yeah. It sounded like a good all-American name. You know, you could trust Gary Turner. Tr- totally trust Gary Turner, <laughs> yeah. Damien Chazelle, whose name feels like whatever the opposite of Gary Turner is, studied to be a jazz drummer in high school. His dad played a lot of old records around the house, so Damien grew up listening to the greats, Art Blakey, Buddy Rich, Chick Webb. But after graduating, he wanted to direct movies. Damien studied filmmaking at Harvard, mostly making documentaries. For his senior thesis, he wanted to combine his love of film with music. So he directed a musical, a black-and-white musical, called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. He continued working on it after graduation. In 2009, it debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival. Damien makes a cameo in the movie, playing a drum solo. And the guy can play. So the Village Voice review of Guy and Madeline mm-hmm. on a park bench this must have made a guy like you feel pretty good, especially given what you have done since. It's the kind of film a young Cassavetes would have made were he working for MGM's Freed Unit. Mm. 
That's nice. That's very nice. That's very nice of them. I mean, it's two. It's two. It's 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 Cassavetes and Freed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd read these. Uh, I don't know how apocryphal they were, but sort of uh, things about Cassavetes often talking about want, wanting to make a musical. Uh, never never got around to it. So I, uh, you know, but it became one of those fun hypotheticals to imagine what would that have been. But again, I guess I like the the idea of uh, things that seem contradictory, you know, um, which, again, I think so much of the old Hollywood system, you could sort of interpret that way. You know, what 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 do you get when you get uh, when you put Fritz Lang, for instance, into uh, into the confines, let's say, of a uh, of a traditional Hollywood studio picture? Um, often you get these kind of amazing hybrid things that sort of defy expectations. Um, so. I think I encountered musicals or really fell in love with musicals when I was making a documentary or making sort of cinema verite documentaries. So I think the sort of contradiction right there of sort of maybe trying to combine those two forms um, seemed seemed delicious. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about L.A. and that's going to involve me, you telling me about your history in L.A. because part of me would think, part of me in my desire to pigeonhole people, and, you know, you, you grew up here in, in the States, in Jersey, and in Paris, right? Mm-hmm. Your dad's, uh, is he Parisian or just French? He's from Paris. He's- uh, I get, yeah, Parisian. I mean, you know, I mean, he, it's, it's been now 50 years since right. he lived there, but, but yeah. So, um, and you, if I were going to write the cliche of who I imagine you to be, and you're so thoughtful, Right, that you and you're from the East, and so you should hate LA, right? Or you should like, you know, you're right. in LA because you have to, but you don't like it. But I don't feel like that's true. I feel like you like it here, which makes me. And I, I'm a huge. I've become this very big cheerleader for LA. I don't mm-hmm. like it when people knock it. There are things to knock it about, but there's so many great, yep. wonderful things here. Yeah. What do you like about this place? Well, I mean, I, th- I think uh, my love of LA is so tied up with the moment in my life when I did hate it. Um, I honestly only knew L.A. through sort of East Coast put-downs right. of, of L.A. Uh, I knew it from, you know, jokes in Annie Hall. I knew it from, uh, I also knew it from, you know, sort of movies I loved going to the multiplex to see. And, you know, when I was a kid, things like uh, Speed or uh, um Volcano, you know, it's like uh, there was the, the, there was these sort of you know temple action movies set in L.A., um, you know, uh, and essentially the vision of L.A. I got from those movies was one long, endless concrete freeway. Right. Um, so it seemed very unlivable, and I moved out with kind of some degree of trepidation, but definitely not considering that I would stay. It was just going to be a you know very temporary thing. And then I'd wind up making a home either in New York or and Europe. you came because you thought, whatever. I need to get some, I need to learn this business, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. If it hadn't been for movies, I wouldn't have, uh, I wouldn't have even thought to give LA a try. Um, and, and then I think, yeah, it just bit by bit, you know, it wasn't overnight, but bit by bit, I sort of fell in love with the city. And I would say I fell in love with, the things that had made it seem hard to grasp. And ultimately, you can fall in love with L.A. for, if nothing else, for its originality. There's no other city like it. The there world. is no other city like it. Um, mm-hmm. 
What'd you do when you got here though? You came out here. It wasn't like you, you know, you didn't get here. And then four months later, you didn't get your screenplay for a whiplash into production. No, um, no. I mean, I, so I, I was editing Guy Madeline when I moved out here and then, um, and then I think I naively thought that my, uh, you know, 16 millimeter black and white cinema verite musical was going to open all the doors <laughs> of Hollywood and agents were going to be begging me to, <laughs> to, to sign with them. Um, that did not happen. Uh, I, uh, you know, then I, so I was kind of working odd jobs to pay bills. Um, and I sort of decided, um, you know, wow, well, wouldn't it be great to at least just get paid to do something that feels like vaguely on the path of what I want to be doing. So, you know, I could write. So I decided maybe I'll try to get work as a writer, but yeah, living in LA, I mean, I just kind of, you know, I became aware of the, the people who were making money writing. And so it was sort of the, um, the spec market and things like that, you know, seemed like, uh, what does that mean? Uh, well, you know, just selling, uh, you know, writing something on your own. Cause the great thing about writing is you didn't really need anyone's money to write. Um, so you just kind of use whatever spare time you had between jobs, write something and then, you know, and then you would, uh, sell it and it would be the next, uh, you know, the next uh, lethal weapon or something. Um, and eventually studying the spec market enough, I decided, okay, the, there's a, there's an appetite for kidnapping thrillers. So I wrote a kidnapping thriller and sold that. And that was the first thing I ever sold, uh, or I got it optioned, you know, um, and, uh, that got me an agent and, uh, <laughs> it's got a great me, realization. Got me. People like kidnapping stories. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was right after Taken. Yeah. So there was a hot little moment. Uh, that's what you got to find. You got to find a movie that's been an unexpected hit and then you just write the copy of that. So I, um, so I did that and, uh, and that got my foot in the door in the sense that, um, you know, that, that movie didn't get made, but it got, uh, got me, um, you know, uh, writer, writer for higher work. So then I started kind of doing, you know, rewrites or, or sort of script doctor type things, you know, um, uh, stuff like that. You what know? kind of movies? Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised you haven't heard of this, but The Last Exorcism Part 2. <laughs> the Last Exorcism Part 2. Yeah, yeah. 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 Just, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, uh, I, I wrote a draft on that. Um, I wrote a draft on uh, a movie that was called The Cellar at the time, became 10 Cloverfield Lane. So some horror type horror that thriller bad robot. stuff. Yeah, so right there, I guess, yeah, sci-fi, uh, horror thriller. I went up for a lot of jobs I didn't get. Ouija, Paranormal Activity 6 or 7 or whatever it was. So I was in that kind of the, 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 the horror, sci-fi, genre, Screen Gems, Blumhouse kind of world. Incidentally, the people who wound up basically right. getting yeah. Whiplash made, Blumhouse. And and so the, the script doctoring interests me. My, my cousin... Tom Ankowitz uh, was a big time Hollywood script doctor. I mean, he used to brag about like, oh, I got to spend three days fixing this uh, uh, movie. I'm making $185,000. You know, he'd like to tell you how that yeah. was going to go. No, I never saw that kind yeah, of change. Yeah. But, 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 so, but you'd made enough of impression that, that, that producers were saying, can you punch this up? Can you fix this? Can you look at this? on a couple of things? Uh, well, I never graduated to the, you know, uh, that sort of tier where you're kind of considered one of those script closers, you know, where yeah. you know, th those guys go in and really sort of uh, do a few days work uh, uh, and, and quote unquote close a script or fix a script. No, it was more that I would be doing full rewrites on 
stuff that had been, well, like the 10, 10 Cloverfield Lane project, you know, stuff that for whatever reason had been sort of sitting dormant for a bit and they decide they just need some young writer to come in and, um, and uh, reshape it a bit. And they would kind of give me the marching orders for what to do and I would do it. So it wasn't, you know, yeah. it was very much an executing kind of work. The great thing about it was it really taught me through trial and error, how to like the meat and potatoes of right. of writing for for that sort of readership, and also for just kind of writing in in a sort of you know writing in the vein of keep them turning the page, and so you know then I think it wound up you know I go back and I sort of wind up writing in between some of these things I wind up writing Whiplash, and and I think that was written you know on the one hand that was a very autobiographical sort of personal sort of thing to write that had no, that where I wasn't interested in doing anything other than directing that. That wasn't something that I was going to try to sell in the spec market or whatever. I would never have written that to do that. Um, but I, whether consciously or not, I was, I think, writing it with a little bit of that keep them turning the page sort of feeling. And so it's sort of... It's so that work helped, helped you structure Whiplash, maybe. I, I think, think, yeah, yeah. or at least gave some sort of spice to the writing of it such right. that it became more readable than it might otherwise have been. Uh, it was not easy to get that made. You finished that script, but there was still a long process before somebody took enough interest in it to to put it into production, let alone with you. Yes. Uh, was there a willingness to make Whiplash without you? Like, the people read it and be like, well, oh, I like this, but not with you, this young... Yeah. I don't know how much real appetite there was for, for it regardless. You know, I mean, certainly if there had been some some hot director attached to it, then I think that would have... Then it would have uh, sped things up. By the time I started going out with Whiplash as a script, I had also been working a lot on La La Land, um, and that was a similar kind of thing. Where I think there, I think it was more, more uh, overt. You know, questions being asked of, uh, you know, do you need to direct this? If if we gave this to so and so, maybe it could actually get made. But obviously, it's never going to get made with you directing it. La La Land, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I wrote that, but even before Whiplash. Oh, you wrote La La Land before Whiplash, right? I'm yeah. Just, so the or some version of I La want to get a yeah. sense of your level of confidence that this was going to work out. Then, uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, the confidence would probably come and go. It, it, you know, I'd have the sort of uh, I don't know. I guess I had some. Uh, I had faith, not confidence, if that makes sense. It I does. Think, I think yeah. the sort of uh, um, the actual odds of any of it seemed very not promising. But um, but I think, you know, one thing I think I knew that I had over some of my competitors was just the willingness to stick it out. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up... Damien Chazelle tells us about the real music teacher that inspired J.K. Simmons' character in Whiplash. J.K. Simmons in the film is like my nightmare vision of this teacher. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, Answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Whiplash, which came out in 2014, was Damien Chazelle's first Hollywood feature. It's loosely based on his experiences learning jazz drumming from his intense music teacher at Princeton High School. Miles Teller plays the Damien-inspired character, Andrew. J.K. Simmons is the intense teacher. Why do you suppose I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman? I, I don't know. Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, damn it! Look at me! One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Rushing or dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference! Whiplash, you said, uh, autobiographical. You, you, you were a drummer. Yep. And you had a difficult teacher, maybe not as yep. aggressively cruel or menacing as J.K. Simmons uh, in the film, but... But I heard you say the the manner in which you were treated and his other students were treated, still nightmares or nightmares for a while. Like you'd still think about it. Yeah, though. Again, I mean, it's like, well, yeah, not not as cruel as J.K. Simmons. I, I I think a lot of it was. I would say that J.K. Simmons in the film is like my nightmare vision, or the vision of this teacher who who occupies my nightmares. But some of those lines. But the inspiration, yeah, yeah for 100%. And, and, and some yeah. of the, the things he said, right? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not my tempo, all that stuff. Was, yeah. Th- right. Those were the mantras that would haunt me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So how did it turn? How do you get Whiplash made? And, and how do you, and, and who, who says, yeah, you can, how old were you then? You're like. Uh, when Whiplash, uh, it'd be like 20, you know, 27 or something like that. Um, there were a few years of kind of initially, writing the script, getting the script into people's hands who sort of went, oh, okay, there's something here. Then they had the idea of making a short film. Who has that idea? That's, that's a good idea. That's Cooper Samuelson and Helen Estabrook was the other producer These who producers. Worked, with, worked with Jason Reitman at the time. And so they had tried kind of going out with just the script and, and had gotten the sort of response e- either of no, just flat no, or mm, like the script, but don't know who this director is. Does he have to direct it, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so their idea was let's, let's just take a scene from the script, a scene that we could really finance effectively out of our own pockets. Um, ironically, the other producer who was working with them at the time, Nick Bertel, who since then has become a renowned composer, uh, film composer, um, uh, he was the one who financed the short. So give me a sense of what that cost to, to move. It's to like work. 10 grand. I was going to say five, maybe. 10. So it's like 10 grand and you're going to um, shoot three days. One so, scene. so it was the idea of like, let's, 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 let's raise up our own little pool of money. This is what the producers were saying. Um, so that we can make a kind of professional looking proof of concept of this film. So we'll just take a scene from the film and we'll try to show what that will um, uh, look like with this guy at the helm. 
Um, and so does that happen a lot? Because it seemed when I first heard that, I thought this was such an obviously great idea. But I, I hadn't heard of it happening before. I uh, and I don't know if since then if it's become more more normal. No, but I thought it was a sort of yeah. I agree. I thought it was a great idea, uh, especially in retrospect. When it was first pitched to me, I was like, "What the hell? I don't want to do a short. I I, I already did a, you know my feature." Uh, when I was uh, leaving school, and this feels like a step backward. Um, I don't think I said any of this to, to them. I think but I just you, nodded dutifully and yeah, said, uh, right. sure, okay, we'll do this. But, uh, but yeah, the short wound up doing kind of basically exactly what they hoped it would do. It, it, you know, it, it sort of suddenly got us a few people to the table who were interested but in to, me But directing. to do it, you need to, I mean, you need to get a, who was in the short? Like how many? Well, it, JK was in the short, but that was really a favor for Jason Reitman. Um, so Jason was able to kind of talk him into into doing the short, and then, and then I met with him, and um, uh, and uh, but that's a, I mean, again, it's like it's fortunate, it's luck, but I mean, it's you know, like well, I end up quoting this often all the time too. Branch Ricky, who signed Jackie Robinson, luck is the residue of design. I mean, you'd fostered a huh. friendship with Jason Reitman, you'd 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 made yourself seem substantive because you are, you know, you'd you'd made an impression on people. So it's not just luck, right? That, that made him confident enough to call an actor like J.K. Simmons and say, take two or three days if you can. Here's this, you just, he send you the whole script? You send him the whole script or just the scene? No, I think J.K. was given the whole script. Right. I think we, we, talk, we wound up talking about the full, the full thing. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the idea, I think the, the hope was that if this short turns out okay, we'll get money to do the... Right. So hopefully it was like an investment. Um, you know, and then it, it, the, the scene was one of the rehearsal scenes, you know, where he throws the chair. So, that, so you know, it, it was a smart scene to pick because it's you get kind of the drama and the sort of, you know, uh, you get the gist of the teacher-student relationship, but you're all in one room, you know, uh, so we cast out the rest of the band with, you know, local music students or, or, or musicians and and so you get your group of people, you shoot it all in one room. And yeah, we shot it for, I think it was three days um, with a small crew here in LA and, uh, and, and then took the short to Sundance. And, and that's kind of what started the, actually kind of opened the real doors. Despite the fact that you made a feature and that, you know, you were very confident that you could direct this whole thing. I, I was struck by that that first day of shooting the short was almost the most nervous you've ever been. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's because I just didn't really know what a quote-unquote like professional film set was like until right. I sort of got on it. I mean, I think I, I I learned that first day that there was a big difference between sort of student filmmaking with my pals and, you know, where we'd kind of shoot a little bit documentary style and then, you know, wait right. a few weeks to process the film and go shoot some more the next weekend. You know, here is, yeah, we had three days in and out. Um, it was a lot of pages to do in three days. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I never even had an AD before. So kind of getting used to what that role was, getting used to just the various sort of, um, again, even though it was this sort of low budget short, it, it, it was crude um, like a, like a sort of you know professional Hollywood film set, there's so a, there's so a, so a I really I, respected like the the prototype in of this generation of Hollywood's best character actor is there too. I mean, this is well, a, yes, yeah, yeah, right, right. So that was the thing too, where it was it was uh, yeah, you're going from working with again with your friends or with non actors or with sort of you know uh, 
people kind of at your level to uh, to something like that. So I just you know found myself having to sort of pretend I knew what I was doing, not feeling like I knew what I was doing at all in the slightest. The first day was a total train wreck in my mind. Um, and second day was a little bit better. And then the third day, I was like, okay, maybe actually, maybe I don't have to quit <laughs> just just yet. Feeling feeling just a little, little had regained a little bit of my confidence. But I'd say uh, of anything I've ever done, that those three days of that short was the felt like the closest to a learning by fi- trial by fire. J.K. Simmons won an Oscar for his performance in Whiplash. Damien Chazelle picked up a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination. Whiplash's success gave Damien the juice he needed to get his next feature greenlit. The project was a modern musical, La La Land. It's the story of a jazz musician, played by Ryan Gosling, and an actress, that's Emma Stone, both trying to make it big while singing and dancing in Cinemascope. I should probably tell you something now, just to get it out of the way. Mm -hmm. I hate jazz. Are you okay? What do you mean you hate jazz? It just means that when I listen to it, I don't like it. Yeah, but it's such a blanket statement you don't like jazz. What are you doing right now? Nothing. So La La Land and talking to you years ago when you were on TCM really, in large part, has done more than anything else to change how I see musicals. That you had a great deal to do with that. And a big part of that was uh, uh, was seeing The Umbrellas of Cherbourg as part of it, one of the movies that mm-hmm. you programmed on TCM. Because you were in the same place I was, which is just this inability, and you've come much further than I have. I'm not fully there where, why are they, you know, the, the, the same, it's typical, yeah, yeah. it's boring. The why are they singing? Why are they singing? Why are they singing? And how do I, how do I believe anything that happens after this? How do I invest emotionally in anything that happens after that when they have just broke out into song for <laughs> yeah. for no reason. Yeah. Um, that was you, right? Oh yeah, I remember that feeling well. Yeah, and you <clears throat> and you saw big movies. This was how you. Yeah, it was your. This was your reaction to West Side Story and Singing in the Rain, The Sound of Music. You were like, Ugh, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Ironically, I never had that problem with the you know going back to Disney with the animated musicals. Um, but it's animated. It's, uh, it's a different. Yeah. Right. We're, we know exactly. not to believe it. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that um, I think it's what makes the live action musical such a again for for such a populist, you know, at least at one time mainstream genre. It's such a uh, bold, defiant, you know, this side of the avant garde genre in a, in ways that I think we don't always appreciate. That um, because because the whole theory of I think of sort of live action cinema and how it works on us is predicated on verisimilitude, is predicated on some basic idea of documentary reality and has been since Lumiere and, uh, you know, um, Andre Bazin writes about this, you know, that is the, 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 the sort of, you can agree or not, but that the essence of the filmed image is is its semblance of reality. So there's that thing where um, something that seems so simple, like an orchestra coming out of nowhere and just starting to cue someone singing for no reason, um, uh, can be so discomforting and so kind of off-putting and uh, um, throw the audience for a loop. And if you could find a way to sort of play with it, then then you were, you know, it's, it's sort of what Vincent Minnelli was doing in something like American Paris. You were sort of smuggling in 
um, smuggling the avant-garde into into the most you know mainstream wholesome family entertainment that you could imagine. Um, so, if you were writing La La Land before Whiplash, um, did you have anybody in mind when you're writing it, or were you just? I think I was dreaming at various points of Ryan and Emma, um, but it, it was a very circuitous kind of, uh, you know, and, and then I had other people in mind as well, uh, you know, at various junctures. I mean, the, the La La Land was such a, it's hard to even remember because it kind of, it sort of evolved slowly over the course of so many years just as a script. Ultimately, I remember the two projects being sort of concurrent, and it was kind of the question of which one I was going to get to make first. Was there a, so? But then after the success of Whiplash, then you got to know. Even before Whiplash came out, as soon as it um, premiered to, at Sundance and, and got any sort of good reception at all, um, uh, that during the whole festival, I was on the phone with the producers in L.A. going, okay, how can we use this moment before it evaporates to get La La Land uh, financed? Was there a, a, a moment in either of the films where something hit you about directing actors that you had not anticipated? How did you figure it out, or was it just... Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, sort of, you know, Whiplash, I storyboarded everything. You know, La La Land was pretty predetermined as well. So you have your whole kind of architecture in your head of how a scene's going to go, and it depends on the actors being in this spot and that spot. And, um, you know, I think I was sort of, again, very much thinking the Hitchcock kind of, approach and um hitchcock approach to to storyboarding or the hitchcock or, approach to dealing with actors <laughs> i guess dealing with actors not not so much as calling them cattle but that you know you, you were you were a uh, the actor was a piece of a larger puzzle and and uh and there was a geometry at play that had to be respected and then that was the most important thing etc cetera, etc cetera. and and uh i mean of course at the same time i'd been doing all these documentaries and guy madeline was all improvised so uh, I certainly was interested in the, the the other side of that ledger, the flip side of that of that of that equation, um, which is which is that the actor is is uh, or that that the human being on screen is is the determining factor, and that whatever whatever the you know um, whatever that human being does, it's what's uh, it's what the camera needs to be there to capture, and and uh, so it's sort of you know cinema revolving around performance or revolving around um, capturing moments of behavior, you know, let's say it's, it's different from, uh, from, from the sort of Hitchcock approach. So it's, you know, uh, and I guess I've never quite reconciled the two. I guess I like to try to ping pong or combine the two, but, but I would have these moments of sort of learning, learning through trial and error of, you know, where an actor comes onto set and, uh, for whatever reason, they think their character should sit in the other chair not the chair that you've, <laughs> you know, and, and, and they don't even think necessarily that they're throwing a giant wrench in things. They just sort of feel like, oh no, the way I was, you know, they had they had their own sort of version of how the scene was going to play, and it's the opposite of yours, and it completely throws, uh, it completely throws everything in your mind, geometrically, architecturally speaking, out of whack, and you have to adapt. You either just say no, and sometimes you have to do that. Right, something because it's so far out of whack that it, you can't. Yeah, right. But I think what I learned to do was to not just instinctively say no and actually listen. And actually treat each idea or each suggestion, no matter how disruptive it might seem, as a potential opportunity. Um, and that becomes the hardest thing, I think, is to sort of decide in the moment. What is the opportunity that's actually going to make you and your scene better? And what's just disruption where your vision's going to get muddied and, and you're going down a rabbit hole? And, and uh, But hopefully you surround yourself with smart people. And I've been very lucky 
to 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 be able to work with really good actors because they want they want to collaborate just like you do. I mean, they don't want to. They're not exactly once you kind of realize like no one is out there to destroy right, the right, movie, right, you right, know, right. or at least uh, usually no one is. Rarely, uh, right. you know, then you can kind of start to treat everything again as uh, even if you disagree with the with the idea, there's usually something behind the idea that is worth grappling with. And now I look back and my God, the number of times I can't even count of ideas or things or questions that I resisted initially or wanted to resist that wound up saving the movie or saving the character. Damien Chazelle's career took off after he won Best Director for La La Land. The film made close to half a billion dollars worldwide. Damien teamed up again with Ryan Gosling, directing him in the Neil Armstrong biopic First Man. Then, in 2022, he made his most ambitious and expensive film to date, the three-hour early Hollywood epic Babylon, starring Brad Pitt, Diego Calva, and Marco Robbie. A remarkable film in many ways. It divided critics, and it failed at the box office. If you could go anywhere in the whole world, where would you go? I don't know. Um, I always wanted to go on a movie set. Yeah? Yeah, movie set. Tell me why. Why? Yeah, tell me why. Uh, um, I want to go on a movie set, too. Why? Um, I just uh, want to be part of something bigger, I guess. Um, bigger than what? Bigger than this. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Babylon. I know it was polarizing and it was mixed. Yeah, very much. I so. mean, I, I loved this movie. I loved it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, and, I, uh, and I kept thinking, what's wrong with anybody who... I couldn't remember who, but I was like, well, what's wrong with anybody who told me not to see this movie? Right? <laughs> um, I mean, I loved it from the first scene. I loved it throughout. Um, you know, I, I didn't really want it to end. Like I was curious. I was, I was, I was mostly curious. I was like, wait, no, no, that's too, 1952 is, is too far later. I, I need, I need, I need 1934 to 1952. Oh, I, I, want, see. I, want, I wanted more. We'll do the, uh, uh, I, I could, I could actually, <laughs> yeah, between I could, portions. Babylon too. I could, uh, <laughs> um, I could take, and I love the ambition and, and, and scope of it. Um, uh, so let me start with this. Are you proud of Babylon? <laughs> That's a hard question. I mean, I, I guess, you know, I'm proud of anything that, uh, you know, it's hard to make a movie. And so you kind of get something that can and, and, uh, you're proud of it on that level. I, you know, whether I can evaluate it as, as I, I don't think I'm at the point where I can evaluate, you know, whether I think I did what I wanted to do or, or whatnot, you know, it's, it's, it's still very hard for me to watch anything I've done, but certainly something still fresh, you know, so maybe in five years or 10 years, I'll have more, more of a, more of a sense of it. But Babylon again is, is like with any movie, but maybe even more so with this, you know, it was a lot of movies. So to, to just kind of get it in the can, um, and, and, you know, knowing how much work that took from the people I made it with and how much sort of, you know, how many leaps of faith and whatnot, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud on that level that, um, you know, people that I really loved working with, uh, you know, got together that we all were able to get together and sort of put on a show, so to speak. I mean, the, 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 the big name actors in it, I thought really delivered. No, that I've, I've no problem sort of heaping praise on 
the people I made the film with. I think I think their performances are but all these people whose name I think uh, yeah yeah and well yeah again, I didn't this, recognize either were like they were just I was like this is so good I was well, looking everybody well up. we got we had a lucky thing with that film of. Uh, uh, or, you know, lucky blessing in disguise where it sort of, you know, stopped and started the sort of, you know, we, we were right. about to start prep. We had just begun hard prep in March, 2020. Um, it wasn't till a year after that, that we were resuming prep. So one of the things I did during that year was uh, look at a lot of self tapes and, uh, um, and uh, cast. And so, uh, you know, casting that would have necess- normally had to be done within the confines of two or three months wound up uh, taking over a year to do. And, and I think uh, we were able to, like, dig up a lot of really great people that we might not have found otherwise, um, including Diego Calva, the, you know, the, the lead who plays Manny. You know, that, that was a long search for, for him. But down to, you know, yeah, the, the you know, much smaller roles and day players and whatnot. Uh, we were able to really... I've never spent more time casting a film, and it was really... Working with Francie Maisler, brilliant casting director. I mean, it was really uh, that that I think that work and extra time paid off for sure. Um, has how has your relationship with Hollywood changed? Has it at all since Babylon? Has you know it lost a lot of money, so that that's a benchmark that people care about, right? Right. right. Has right? uh, that? I don't know. I'm gonna have to. Uh, you know, I sort of I've had my. Uh, kind of been, you know, sort of head in the sand, just sort of writing. So I think I'll get a real t- taste uh, of how it's changed or not um, once I sort of finish this next script and uh, try to actually get it made. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in a, uh, yeah, trepidatious uh, sort of uh, state of mind. But, um, um yeah, I mean, I have no illusions that I'm not going to get uh, like a budget of, of Babylon size uh, anytime, uh, anytime soon, or at least not not on this next one. So, I guess I've learned the hard way that uh, I'm going to be uh, there'll <laughs> there'll be some fundamental part of me that's anxious no matter what, uh, whether the previous one worked or didn't. Um, but uh, but certainly, yeah, in financial terms, Babylon did not work at all, and uh, you know. Uh, I'm sure that'll be. You, you, you like try to have that not affect what you're what you're doing creatively, but maybe at some level it can't help but affect it. And then, but then maybe that's okay. I don't know. I'm really of mixed mixed minds about it. So I guess I guess again, it leads me to try to um, try to sort of yeah do what I would have done uh, well, I, regardless. I, I, and then and then and then you see again. I mean, who knows? Maybe I won't be able to get this one made. I have I have no idea. So we'll have to see. We're taking another quick break. When we return, Damien Chazelle reveals his favorite movie of all time in the Super 8. It's just the greatest orchestration of color and music and performance. We're back. Time for the Super 8, where we ask our guests a series of set questions about movies they've watched, movies they've loved, and movies they'll never forget. Here we go. Um, Damien Chazelle and the, and the Super 8. Uh, oh, yeah. Most memorable movie-watching experience? Well, 
There's a few on that one, but I'll, I'll go with the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, uh, uh, just because, again, it's hard to point to a movie that where I came in one person and left a totally different person. Um, you remember the theater the, you the saw it in? Extent to which, oh, it wasn't a theater. It was VHS on a little TV in my, you know, my parents' couch. Is there a, a most memorable theater watching experience for you when you were young? Theater watching, um, well, uh, Peter Pan was the first time I went to a movie theater, the, a Disney's Peter Pan, and I'll always remember. In Jersey? In Jersey. I'll always remember Captain Hook's face and kind of, uh, you know, he's got that bulbous nose and you imagine it on a big screen. Just kind of dominated my field of vision in such an overwhelming way. Movie you loved in uh, high school? Uh, well, there's many. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with Full Metal Jacket because uh, it had personal uh, echoes for me when I watched it. Of like, oh, someone made a film about uh, about my uh, about your about my, your about your drum teacher, about my my music uh, yeah music student experiences. Uh, again, not to equate at all uh, the 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 sort of petty aggravations I went through uh, in comparison to going to war. But the first half of Full Metal Jacket, just the sort of co- uh, pressure cooker environment of, uh, of, how he, of the boot camp and how it's portrayed. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sound off like you got a pair. Sir, yes, sir. There have been a lot of good drill instructors in movies, but Arlie Ermey there. He still the takes best. the, yeah. yeah, he still takes the. Um, movie you'd yeah, show a date, like then or uh, now? I mean, other like, than Paths of Glory? Yeah, full sure. Full jacket. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite a Kubrick war film double feature, yeah. Yeah. Um, City Lights has a special place in my heart and is always one I think I'd be kind of eager to share with any, or have been eager to share with any, um, anyone, you know. Uh, uh, so, yeah. Did you, I'll did, throw your, a chaplain did you, and, and your, your wife connect? It's the greatest ending in film history, in my opinion. So, because sort of, sort of, a, sort of lovely to see it through someone else's eyes and kind of work your way towards the end. Uh, I get the feeling you're an emotional guy. Is there a movie that makes you cry consistently? Uh, well, uh, City Lights would be would be one. But to pick something else, I'd say uh, going back to the the beauties of the old Hollywood studio system, I'd say Make Way for Tomorrow, the Leo McCary film. That's hard a good to one. beat. Yep, hard to beat. That'll make you cry. Uh, filmmaker of the past, uh, there must be so many, who you'd say if you had the opportunity, hey, let's make a movie together. Yeah. Uh, so yes, there's so many. Um, I, I I would pick just one that I've always felt was just un, under heralded and just fascinating in terms of where he he was at. It's this guy Dudley Murphy, who um, was part of this sort of avant garde scene both in Paris and the United States. He was an American filmmaker uh, in the 20s, and then he made some of the first uh, kind of, uh, again, you could call them sort of primordial musicals. You know, there were these these little short films uh, with jazz musicians. Uh, he made one called Black and Tan with Duke Ellington, he made one called uh, St. Louis Blues with Bessie Smith. Um, he also wound up making um, 
the film version of The Emperor Jones uh, with Paul Robeson. Uh, so not a musical, but but if you see it, sort of a proto-musical in the sense that he's kind of, you know, Paul Robeson has these uh, moments where he's uh, performing songs and musical numbers in it as part of the character. But it's also this like crazy phantom, like kind of phantasmagorical like trip of a movie. You were the first person to answer Dudley Murphy. Uh, good. Uh, yeah. Um, good. The, uh, Let me know when, when you get a second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did he work with Gary Turner? Um, the, uh, uh, you're, a, uh, you're a thief. This, there's a vast warehouse of every movie prop from every film ever made. You only have time to steal one thing before the cops get there. What do you take? This is a hard one. Maybe because it has such emotional resonance for me. The necklace in Vertigo that Kim Novak wears at the end that, that gives her away. Because it's probably a beautiful prop, uh, yeah. and it's beautiful in the film. But even thinking of that moment where Jimmy Stewart sees it at the end, uh, that's one of the great moments in film. So for is, that me, your, is that your favorite Hitchcock movie? By far, yeah. By far, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's maybe my favorite film ever. I, mean, I don't know. It, it's up there. In the, I know. I hate ranking them. I top, hate ranking first because you instantly so, feel like, you know. No, Vertigo, I mean, I watch it, you know, once every few months. It's... Uh, that's just yeah. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, it's it not my. It's not in my. Uh, I mean, like you know, it's funny. I say it's like my eleventh favorite Hitchcock movie, which makes it a great movie, right? You know, I mean, it's still he's, he's yeah. that rare director yeah, where right. that can still be a compliment. Yeah, you can yeah. see our thirteenth best Hitchcock movie is really a pretty solid film. Uh, um, uh, but when's, uh, when's the last time you've seen it? it? Feels like it's due for a rewatch. If it's yeah, only it could 11. be. I mean, I've had so many people tell me that I'm wrong. It's just uh, I don't. It's funny. I don't like. Um, I mean, the critics didn't like it when it came out. Didn't make any money. I don't like one some, of his less, you know, least well performing films. Yeah, I know. It's a. Uh, I don't like symbolism. I don't like aggressive symbolism. I love subtext. I don't like symbolism. I mean, my advice would be, yeah, I totally get it. It's definitely one of those movies that, that where film academics have gone to town on it to such an extent that it could be hard to yeah. see the see through that. But I would try to try to forget all that and just experience it as a sensory. It's just the greatest orchestration of color and music and performance just in the service of one single emotion. I mean, it's like Wagner. It's just like, just let it sweep over you. I'm not mad. I'm not mad. I don't want to die. There's someone within me, and she says I must die. Oh, Scotty, don't let me go. I'm here. I've got you. I'm so afraid. You are literally the guy who changed my mind in general on musicals. Oh, so, great. So, maybe I'll be the so one in you Vertigo. May, you may get it on Vertigo. <sighs> Knock on wood. Uh, just a couple more. Um, uh, first of all, what was your father's name? Bernard. Bernard Chazelle. What do you do? Bernard Chazelle. Um, he's a mathemat- uh, computer scientist, mathematician, a professor of computer science. I know that you didn't get your love of movies directly from your parents, but uh, but it came early. Um, uh, did your dad have a favorite film? I would say his favorite films are the ones that were the most fun kind of discovering with him would be, you know, French comedies that no one in the United States 
has heard of, but um, you know that I grew to love. There's this great, one of the greatest all-time film comedians, Louis de Funès. Um, he's not very well known in the States, but any French person grew up with his films. Um, and he, he made a few great, his, but my favorite is La Grande Vadrouille. I don't even know really how you'd pronounce it, sort of like, uh, um, pronounce it, sorry, how you would translate it. Um, but it's basically this British spies in occupied France, and they have to find a way to kind of smuggle them down to uh, unoccupied uh, southern France. And on the one hand, it's the sort of like, you know, World War II kind of epic, beautifully shot and mounted, but you've got two of the greatest comedians in French cinema, Dufinez on the one hand and Bourville, this other great comedian who Americans probably know him better because he then um, wound up closing out his career with a beautiful dramatic turn in the Melville movie, The Red Circle. He plays the cop, um, very sort of world-weary, sad, resigned sort of character. But but he made his career as a sort of goofball comedian. And so these two guys, I mean, it's like the greatest... It's, you know, it's, it it's, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. I mean, it's just like a great So this combo. is a comedy, oh, but it's a... Oh, yeah, it's a full-fledged... Uh, comedy, but... Broad but, comedy. What's your mom's name? Uh, Celia. Celia. And was she, where is she, is she from Jersey? Is that the, or is she... No, she, uh, her side of the family now mostly lives in Canada, but she grew up in the States, in sort of California and Ohio. And, Does she have a favorite movie? Yeah, I mean... It's it's harder to um, she, her movie tastes were more my dad's movie tastes were very narrow, you know it was like these French comedies or James Bond movies and <laughs> you know it was little, not, not much else. Um, with her, you know, she was the one who was kind of first putting like old Hitchcock films or The Four Hundred Blows or something like that in my hand. So uh, she has a funny, like an eccentric. I wouldn't call it her favorite movie, but one that you could get her going on is uh, the Antonio Banderas movie, The 13th Warrior by John McTiernan. You ever see this? Based on the Michael Crichton novel, Eaters of the Dead. Uh, Antonio Banderas plays, uh, well, he's basically kind of a traveler in uh, Viking land. It's it's like a riff on Beowulf, you know. Have you ever read the Michael Crichton book, Eaters of the Dead? No, I've read almost all Michael Crichton books. Oh, it's a good Michael Crichton one where it's sort of a riff on Beowulf, but kind of what what could be the real story behind Beowulf as seen from the eyes of a traveler from Baghdad. Um, so it's this sort of fish out of water, you know, educated, enlightened uh, man, poet, uh, scientist, sort of, you know, uh, you know, rational-minded individual from Baghdad who's traveling to the Wild West at the time of sort of Northern Europe. She likes it because she gets really uh, in a tizzy very often about Hollywood depictions of the Middle Ages. She's a, she's a medieval historian. And for whatever reason, she claims this film Guess is it. actually one of the more accurate I love whatever we are. We always, you know, I was a journalist for a long time, so I got a lot to say about what's wrong with every journalism movie, right? Ah, there you go. And yeah. I like your mom is like, this is, <laughs> this is what's wrong with every medieval movie. Every, and every it's one of the, yeah, one of the ones you don't hear about that often that according to her gets it right where most movies get it wrong. Uh, Damien, you've taken, we've taken a lot of your time and, uh, 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 you know, you're just a wonderful filmmaker and uh, it's, Thank a, you. it's always a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for having me. All right. So I followed Damien's advice once before, put my cynicism aside, and discovered the pleasure of a vibrant musical, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. I'm going to take his advice a second time and revisit Vertigo. Instead of trying to figure out what's happening, I'm going to, as Damien said, 
let the picture wash over my senses. Then I'm going to check out The 13th Warrior. I mean, it's not every day someone recommends a movie set in the Middle Ages because it's historically accurate. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can find many of the movies we talked about on the streaming service Max. We made a list for you. It's in our show notes. James Kim produces and edits Talking Pictures. Dory Stegman books the show. Glenn Matullo mixes each episode. Thanks to Phil Richards, Yako Friedman, Julie Baton, Katie Daniels, and Emma Morris. Angela Carone is our executive producer. Special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt and Allison Cohen from the Max Podcast team. And as always, to Charlie Tavish from TCM. See you next time. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.